Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to the Lockbox Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Broger, your host, and today with us is Brian Adams. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? Yeah, sure. I appreciate that. So, I am a New Yorker who married a native Nashvilleian. We met in college up in Connecticut. We did the Northeast thing for a little bit. We both went to grad school in Boston and moved to Nashville about 15 years ago. My wife and her family, uh, for the most part, are all still down here. And I practiced law for a couple of years here in Nashville and was fortunate enough to get exposure to the commercial real estate space through my wife's family, who has a, a single family office based here. And through kind of developing those connections with sponsors and general partners, et cetera, I got that entrepreneurial bug to start my own company. 10 years ago, I connected with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. And we've been building our company ever since. Excellent. And it said in uh, your bio that you're a recovering attorney. So you have a, a law background. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I practiced for about four years here in Nashville okay. and retired my license a couple of years ago. I got tired of doing the continuing legal education requirements between Christmas and New Year's every year. So I don't formally give legal advice any longer, but that is how I started my career. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see that that now helps you with owning a, a capital company? It certainly gave me a lot of credibility early on. I mean, I'm 38. I started the company in my late 20s. And real estate, despite changing, is still very much an older kind of traditional industry. So I think having that JD helped um, convince people to take me seriously initially. And then certainly in the early days, I did a lot of the the work on the purchase and sale agreements and the leasing, et cetera. But I was uh, more than happy to assign that to our third-party council once we got big enough to afford to do so. Yes. No, that makes sense. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, how does a capital company start? Like, is it at the point where you just have enough people in your circle that are looking for things to do with their money that you're able to put it together and get a couple of returns and then it grows from there? Um, what are the origins of the the company? I mean, you said that you partnered with your friend from New York and you both, you know, met Nashville girls. But, you know, as far as the origins of Excelsior, right? Excelsior Group. Um, yeah. You know, what's the origin story there? Yeah. So, raising capital is, is I think, a really misunderstood and challenging part of being a commercial real estate sponsor. So, what happened for us was, you know, we were fortunate to have a network of, of folks who were, you know, affluent and had the ability to invest in these type of opportunities. My father-in-law, the hardest thing that he ever did, but I think one of the best things he did long-term was he initially said, you know, here's $100,000. I'm going to be an investor with you. You can tell everybody in town that I'm an investor and I'll make two introductions for you. After that, you're on your own. Because I really thought there'd be more there, right? Maybe not from a dollar figure standpoint, from but just from a, hey, I can host a dinner or I can hook you up with some of my buddies. 
And that was really challenging. And it was really frustrating at the beginning, but it forced me to have just the painful experience of doing the coffee meetings, asking for the warm introductions, getting the referrals, getting no's. And we can go into this if you want. I have a whole kind of theory about how to raise capital the right way. But when I just kind of got thrown into it, it was very much just having coffee with anybody that could that would be willing to meet with me. And I would try to schedule my day. There's an old trick, Northwestern Mutual insurance guys, they won't leave the office until they have three meetings set up for every day the next week. And so Mm. what I would do is I would try to have five meetings set up every day and do 10 phone calls every day. And so that was just kind of how I lived for the first couple of years. And then it expanded. I started traveling. I was doing probably 100, 150 flights a year, 30 plus nights on the road. And I don't do that any longer, thankfully, but initially it was just having coffee and talking to anybody that was willing to talk to me. Interesting. Yeah. So putting in that footwork and your father, does he have a background in commercial investments or did he just have some investments of his own and he was able to give you that jump start? Yeah. So my father-in-law is the patriarch of our family office. Yeah. His day job is as a trauma surgeon. So he started the trauma department and the lifelife program at Vanderbilt, which is a level one trauma center. So he was chief of trauma for about 35 years. And then he comes from an affluent family. So he inherited some money from his father and eventually invested that in a company that ended up going public in the 90s. So he had two liquidity events. And through that kind of exposure, gained uh, proficiency in private equity, both on the venture side and the commercial real estate side. Nice. That makes total sense. And I honestly respect his approach to not totally spoil you and set everything up for you because that would have set you up for failure in most cases. And he was able to give you enough of a start, but then have you work for it and learn and really put in the hours and grind. So he honestly gave you a gift. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, looking back on it, it was probably the best thing he could have done for me. And to this day, people still, they hate a lot of sponsors and GPs and people in my position the fundraising is the least favorite part for them. They, they hate it. They don't like the sales component of it, but I fully embrace it. And I think it's made all the difference in the world in our ability to efficiently scale the business. So it, it certainly is a skill set that's developed over time. You've got to go out and get the nose. Um, you've got to learn how to sell the company. But if you're not the chief sales officer, I think you're going to fail in this business. And is that specifically capital or real estate in general? Yeah, I think it's certainly in the capital side. Yeah. And, you know, on, in real estate, the skill sets are very similar, right? So, in order to find an opportunity, get a deal, you've got to be able to be thoughtfully persistent. You've got mm-hmm. to be able to be creative with getting people to pay attention to you, especially if you're young or you don't have track record. You've got to convince brokers to take you seriously or sellers to take you seriously. And so, your network is really the lifeblood, both on the deal side and the capital side. And this business, even though it can be very complex and a lot of jargon associated, at the end of the day, it's about finding opportunities and raising capital around those opportunities. That is it. You can find everything else in the deal as long as you go find <laughs> yeah. a deal. <laughs> yeah. Everything else can be outsourced or third-party, but those two skill sets are something that there's always a premium paced on. Yes. Well, I love that. And you alluded to a theory in raising capital that it seems like a proprietary process or something that you've discovered, I would love to hear more. So feel free to elaborate on that. Yeah. So 
what I often find, and I certainly was guilty of this originally, is a lot of people go out there, sponsors or GPs um, or entrepreneurs, and they have this shiny object, right? Their product, their baby, and they spend all this time working up the deck and they think it's the greatest idea in the world. And in order to raise capital around it, they go out to their friends and family and they cram it down their throats, right? They say, you need to do this. It's a great deal. It's awesome, et cetera, which it will work. It takes a lot of brute force, but you can do it. A much better way to do this is to write down a hundred people in your life that potentially would give you money that will certainly take a meeting. And instead of coming to them with a product, go to them and ask what they want. If you could paint me a picture of your investor experience, what would it look like? What would the return profile be of your investment? What would the subscription look like? What would the reporting look like? What would the marketing look like? Tell me everything that you would you would want, ideally. And then, you know, to the extent that you can, you take all that data and you have an empathetic sales approach where instead of you going to them and giving them your resume, which no one really cares about, or cramming a deal down their throat, you solve their problem, right? So for us, everybody in my company can tell you what we do in one sentence at a cocktail party or whatever. And it's all focused around solving the problem in our investor base, which is access to direct real estate deals, 10% plus cash on cash yields, and getting tax advantages of direct real estate ownership. That's it. So there was really the reverse engineering of the pitch. We're going to people and saying, listen, I know what you do. I know you've got this problem. My product and my investment will solve this problem for you. And it's binary, right? Like you, you like this deal and you don't, but it's a much better way to do things. And you will be able to raise capital much quicker if you're just realistic about your investor base and what they want. And if you solve that problem for them. Wow. I love that. And it's surprisingly similar to the proper way to do marketing. Correct. So coming from a sales and marketing background, when I got into the high ticket mastermind level marketing courses where I was paying, you know, 10K for 10 weeks and, you know, 15K for six months to be a part of a Facebook group kind of thing, the stuff that I learned, a lot of it was reverse engineering. It was go out there and talk to your market, figure out what their pain points are. And then once you know those pain points, now reverse engineer it in a way that they are searching in their language, not in yours, not in the industry jargon that you use in the consumer term, right? And so that's really interesting. That seems to be a, a proven formula for multiple different approaches in business. Because when you go reverse engineer and you get directly from the market exactly what they want, well, now all you need to do is then fulfill that desire. You're not guessing, right? Yeah. And uh, I think something, there was a quote from Tim Ferriss, I believe. He said something like 95% of entrepreneurs create a product where there is no market. Right. And then <laughs> that's the issue, right? And you see a lot of entrepreneurs and I get pitched a lot of deals. And I had a mentor who got me into the business and, and he would say, if you have this bright, shiny object that you love and you care about it and it's cool, but if you can't raise money around it and you can't scale it, that's art and not a business. And there's a place for <laughs> art in our society, but it's not a business. A business is something that you can sell that's scalable and repeatable and that your marketplace wants. So there's just a huge disconnect there, I think, sometimes. Yeah, that makes total sense. And this podcast is all about actions. I've found throughout my career that 
nothing else matters other than the actions that you do on a daily basis, right? Actions, consistency over time, that equals results. So my question to you is, nowadays, what is the single most important action that you take on a daily basis that attributes most to your success? Yeah. And I've rethought all of this with COVID. I, I really thought that I had this thing figured out and COVID has made me completely you know, change how I spend my time and how I think about being productive. So the one thing that I talk about internally to our company is every facet of the business, just every, whatever the time increment you want to use daily, weekly, monthly, just make it 1% better, right? Make your investor relations 1% better. Your reporting, your asset management, your acquisitions, your LinkedIn profile. And if you do that over time, you compound these huge returns. And that's really what we've done the last 12 months. And that's really borne a ton of fruit. So, Is that the slide edge? <laughs> is that the slide edge concept? Is that, I don't know what is that, that is. Oh, so it was either Jay Abrahams in okay. a training or the slide edge, which it talked about something similar, where if you're looking at, you know, top line revenue, well, there are a lot of driving factors to that. And a lot of people think, oh, I want to increase top line revenue by 30%. Well, what if instead you drove it back one level to the actions that are actually driving top line revenue and you increased each of those 5%, 10% and then compounded, you're going to get that 30% and beyond. But what you're doing is focusing on the leading indicator, not the lagging indicator, right? Yeah. The revenue is the lagging indicator. The commission check is the lagging indicator. The leading indicator, those are the phone calls. Those are the appointments. Those are the, the pitches that you're doing, the things, that, the levers you can pull. So I, I'm, I'm really glad that you touched on that. Now, when it comes to you know sourcing deals, I would love to focus on the real estate opportunities because this is primarily a podcast around top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers. And so when you're looking for you know, not necessarily to build up your investor list, because I know that's super important. But the other side of it is now you need to then find these deals, right? So when you're looking at commercial, are you doing a lot of multifamily? Are these strip malls? Like what kind of commercial are you doing? Yeah, sure. They're office or industrial or flex. So kind of office retail in the front with some kind of distribution industrial usage in the back or medical yep. office. So it's, it's no residential. It's all commercial. Awesome. Okay. That makes sense. And then when it comes to sourcing deals, you know, are you uh, a lot of times relying on your broker partners that are making a lot of those outbound cold calls and things like that? Or do you have some systems in place to source deals internally as well? Yeah, it's something we're actually working on. So this is a timely conversation. We have, you know, to give perspective about two and a half million square feet under management. So it's about $400 million portfolio, call it probably 30 plus transactions total. And we focus on smaller deals, right? We like that 10 to $15 million acquisition point, which is a really inefficient marketplace. And oftentimes, and this is where I think, and I hear this term thrown around a lot, off-market. I very rarely have done a principle-to-principle off-market transaction. I think it's actually a bad idea, generally speaking, outside of some you know exceptions. It's almost always broker-driven. And so oftentimes, and this is where when somebody younger who wants to be in the business comes to my office and they have coffee... And I say, well, what do you want to do? So, well, I want to be on the buy side. I want to be on principle. I'm like, well, then you need to go look for a different job because all we do here is pitch stuff. Either, you know, pitch ourselves to win a deal or, or pitch investors. We're on the sell side. And oftentimes what we do is those brokerage relationships, you know, we're a means for liquidity for their client. 
And frankly, we're mm. a means for a commission for them. So right. what we do is we just build up that brokerage network. We love leasing brokers. They work really hard. They typically have a much better relationship with the owner than the capital market sales broker does. And so oftentimes we'll talk to leasing brokers first and say, hey, if you give me an off-market look, we'll keep you on the leasing side or we'll award you the leasing work because that's typically 70% of their take-home. 30% is the deal itself on the transaction. So we really focus on that. And a lot of it is honestly talking college football and talking college basketball with these guys. We're in SEC, Big 12, Big 10 country. And that's where we do a lot of our work. And once you build up that brand and that reputation for being a good actor, not retrading, you know, make sure everyone gets paid the fees that they deserve to get paid, you'll start to get inbounds. It just takes some time and momentum. But, you know, treating those people with the respect and knowing that they're the lifeblood of your company is a really big part of how I teach my acquisitions folks to work every day. Interesting. So partnering with brokers and that could probably be nationwide. Is that right? Yeah. And I tell everybody in the company, I don't care if you're my controller or you're my VP of marketing or whatever. When you wake up in the morning, you need to focus on raising capital and finding opportunities. That's what we do here. Like it's not super complicated and you get both from giving, right? So Mm. making introductions, making referrals, being helpful to people and just having them keep you in mind. There's always the best, like a warm introduction from somebody that you've done a really solid favor to or just been helpful to. The best. That's a great conversion, right? And it's a wonderful conversation. And those are some of the best deals that we've ever found is a mortgage broker saying, Hey, I've got a client that needs some help. You know, will you talk to him? And, you know, we try to make sure that everyone gets taken care of on those type of things. But that's for me what it's all about is making introductions, making referrals, being helpful to people and building up that karma because it always comes back. Yeah, that makes sense. And that brings me to my next question about referrals. Do you have any systems in place to increase the amount of referrals that you receive? I mean, you mentioned having your team have absolute clarity on what their key productivity indicators are, right? Raise capital, increase opportunities. But other than that, do you have any systems in place that are you know, automated systems, follow-up, mailers? Is there anything like that that touches your investor base or even to increase the relationship with your brokers? Do you have anything like that in place? So about 18 months ago, we started this whole content creation, you know, platform where through webinars, podcasts, blog pieces, social media, mostly LinkedIn, increasingly YouTube, we try to be a resource for people outside of commercial real estate. So my network of high net worth individuals and family offices, I don't think it's really helpful for me just to to talk about how great I am and how they should do more of my deals. What I think is helpful if I say, hey, under the Biden administration, there may be some pretty significant tax changes. Why don't I bring on some managers and some professional service providers that might be able to help you think through some of the hard choices you have to make here? And then I'm just kind of building that thought leadership and that industry expertise across kind of the the whole spectrum. And I think once you start doing that and, and people feel comfortable saying, hey, I really want to look into investing in tech or renewables or I need help. My brother-in-law needs a job in this industry. Once people start reaching out to you on that level, it's such a wonderful way to build that relationship because then the next logical step is, yeah, I'm always happy to help, blah, blah. Would you mind if I just kind of put you on our distribution list so that you can see some of the deals that we're putting together and some of the content we're creating? That's kind of how we do it in a systematized fashion. 
I will say another thing that we've started doing, which has been super powerful, is we have a concept called needs and leads, which I stole from YPO, where you get 25 people together on a Zoom for an hour. And you get, hopefully, people who are in ancillary industries, but not conflicting with what you do. So for real estate, there'd be you know a transactional attorney, PNC, mortgage broker, lender, sales broker. And everyone comes once a month and they say, hey, I really need a referral for this, or I've got a client that needs help here. And everyone else on the call says, oh, I've got a guy, or yeah, I can help her out. I can make an introduction. And what you realize is like having those 25 people in that kind of setup is just supercharging your networking and referral base. And it it just has been very productive for us. So we're starting to roll out a concept where everybody on the team has their own needs and leads within their own affinity network once a month. And uh, I'm a huge fan of it. So I, I think it's a great way to do business. Excellent. I like needs and leads and the thought leadership that although it takes a lot of work and it's consistent work over time, it really does build so much authority with your your user base, your clientele base, them referring others, the discoverability and SEO online. I mean, there's so many benefits to it. And you know that's the type of digital real estate that is so valuable nowadays. So that's that's really powerful. Yeah, I will say anecdotally, we did a webinar about SPACs a couple of months ago. And we turned it into a blog piece, we turned it into a podcast, and it was really highly attended. We got great engagement. And so we threw it up on YouTube and on, obviously online. The other day, I got a call from a, a wealth management firm, sizable, that wanted to invest with us. And I said, I'm just curious, like, how'd you find us? And he said, well, I was putting together a presentation to my financial advisors on SPACs. And you were the, the first thing that came up when I Googled it. And so I checked it out. I really liked how you thought about things and how you worked. And I would love to explore kind of partnering with you on some opportunities. Now, that's super powerful, right? I mean, that's somebody reaching out to me directly and that I'm not prospecting. And so to your point, having a footprint in that digital real estate space and just being helpful to people, it's incredible the leverage you can create. No, absolutely. It is so powerful. And you know, that's something that I've been investing in for quite a while, being a digital marketing agency, you know, understanding the value of search as well as paid traffic and just slowly over time investing. I mean, it's not that hard if if you have a good strategy in place. And what you mentioned is a similar structure that that I have in place. And so to add value to my listeners, you know, what I do is when I create a long form piece of content, I then have it transcribed and cleaned up. Then we put that video onto our personal website. And we not only then have a video, which is good for SEO, we have a nice tagline headline, which we've researched, which is a topic that people are searching for. And that's why we created the video in the first place. So keyword research is actually prior to all of this. And then we input all of that text from both of us talking, whether it's myself or myself and a guest. And then all of a sudden, this is an SEO rich blog post on our site. Then we can drive traffic to it. We can have the Facebook pixel and Google Analytics on our site. We can do sophisticated retargeting. There's all, all kinds of things you can do after that. But long term, even after the paid advertising has stopped, when people are searching these things, now you're much more likely to rank. And it's honestly, it's a pretty easy system once it's in place. You shoot the content, boom, it goes to the next step. 
they, uh, you know, your team automatically has it transcribed and posts it. It doesn't take a lot of time. So I, I always want to, you know, get my clients over that barrier. Content doesn't have to be hard. Gary Vee talks about documenting, right? You know, if you, if you want to just document your daily life, you can do that because, you know, if you are living and breathing your industry and you are in and out with real estate or whatever you're doing every single day, then that's valuable. That's fun to watch. Or like what Brian is doing, you know, crowdsourcing ideas, right? And then talking on relevant topics and bringing in expert guests so that, you know, you don't even then have to be the expert. You're the one that's asking the questions and you're letting the expert shine, but it still has that residual value to your brand. So I, 100%. Yeah, I love that. And definitely something that I subscribe to as well. So Brian, you seem like a guy that is great at saying no to things. So what is your process for evaluating what to say no to? Yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. And I, I've gone through different iterations of this where I've tried to be really regimented with my day and have a morning routine. And, and frankly, I find it really stultifying. And, and so I kind of done away with it. And okay. COVID has taught me that I used to get up at 410, coffee, meditation, be at the gym at five, and I would crank it. And what I've realized is I can actually be more productive and more efficient and much more creative if I get more sleep. And mm. if I don't have, I know, and some people this doesn't work for, right? but I don't really carve out my day to be very focused on specific things. So I certainly do take time to make sure that I'm doing my daily tasks and activities and thinking long form. But I also love the spontaneity of where my day takes me oftentimes. And so I actually say yes more than I probably should just because <laughs> in my experience, there's certainly some time wasted. But more often than not, conversations can take you to some pretty wild places. And that's how I've met some of my best partners and investors is through saying yes. So I'm a big proponent of you know a 15-minute phone call. And especially now with, with COVID, that's yeah. much more doable than like an hour-long coffee meeting. And so I spend most of my time on the phone doing things like this and um, following up with people. So I do have some hard no's. I don't work on the weekends unless I absolutely have to. And I always kind of find time for my boys if they have activities or things that I need to be a part of. That's a big uh, line in the sand for me. But otherwise, I'm pretty available. If you want to just message me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to have a phone call with you for 15 minutes. That's awesome. I like how your priorities are in place because for me, it's the same thing. Family number one. I mean, that's it. That's, there's no discussion. <laughs> that is what it is. And it, I didn't, I guess, discover that right when I was born. I had to, you know, kind of go through my teenage years and be rebellious and then come back around and say, you know what? My family's always been there for me. And, and now my family connection is so much closer than ever, which I, I value more than anything. So, you know, I want to be a great uncle to my nephews, right? That's top priority. And, uh, you know, once kids do come, just like you, I'm designing a life now to where I will be able to make the choice to be there for whatever they need me for. And so that is non-negotiable. I agree with the weekend thing. Obviously, as a real estate agent or, you know, a mortgage, mortgage they can kind of work Monday through Friday. Yeah, showings on the weekends is hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Showings on the weekend is hard. So I understand that. But if Monday and Tuesday is your day off, then honor that, right? You need yeah. some rest. You need vacation. Darren Hardy said, hey, you want to increase your productivity next year? Go on vacation. <laughs> Actually, in fact, take two vacations, take three, because you being rested is going to work so much faster in the better direction. You're going to, your creative ability is going to go through the roof 
And it's funny because one of my top like productivity masterminds that I've joined, the uh, leader, he said, hey, you want to know the number one performance enhancer? And everyone's like, oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, this is going to help you remember more. It's going to help you, you know, do better at the gym. It's going to help you. Da, 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 da. He listed all these benefits. We're like, oh, my gosh, what is it? He's like, make sure to get enough sleep. Yeah, <laughs> I've been I've been obsessed with, I mean, I used to just really with the flights and everything else, just not not get enough sleep and thought I was being productive because I was putting hours in. But I've realized right. that, you know, if you get an awesome night's sleep, as many hours as possible before midnight, and to the conversation we had earlier, if you can create a couple of really good pieces of content and have some great investor conversations, I think that quality will always beat out the quantity component of it. And that's really the end goal. So I've totally shifted my mindset on this in the last 12 months. That's awesome. That's it was really good to hear. I'm curious, you know, being a man that deals with a lot of investments, uh, what's one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? You know, it could be something small. It could be something under $100 that you just love and it's just silly. Or it could be something big. Uh, you can really take it wherever you want. Yeah. I mean, I think the easy answer is education here. But I'm going to go with marrying my wife because nice. for, she wouldn't date me for like three and a half years. And so, I had to be pretty persistent there. And so, I, I finally got her to kind of go over the threshold. And that took time. Not as so much money, but certainly time. But having that relationship with her and then frankly, what it's afforded me in terms of the other connections that her family has, has, has proven to be kind of the total game changer for my life. Absolutely. So Good answer. I don't, I, could, it, I don't know if I could put a number on it, but that's certainly the kind of best ROI that I've ever done. Good answer. And if your wife's listening, then she's going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to get her to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's so true. I never underestimate the value of a new connection. So whenever I'm similar to you in that if someone reaches out, they want to have a quick call, I offer a free strategy session, you know, to any top brokers out there that are interested in growing their team. It might not even be a good fit with my company, but I'm always interested in connecting, seeing if I can help you in some way, introduce you to somebody else. And I always, I really value my network and increasing that over time. So yeah, I agree, you know, and the same with me. I just got engaged in January and oh, uh, best be, wishes. Thank you. Thank you. We're getting married, if all goes well, with the lockdowns and things uh, in July. Nice. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, a few more questions here that I want to cover. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? You've already touched on a couple things that you've kind of shifted, but you know, is there a certain like belief, behavior, habit that really has just driven results or happiness or fulfillment in your life? Yeah. So obviously, sleep and exercise are big for me just to stay grounded and to, to kind of fuel that energy that I feel like I need. But the biggest mindset change that I've had is, um, you know, conceptually thinking, of, thinking about it as most of human suffering occurs in the space between where we believe our reality should be and where our reality actually is. Mm. And the more that you can spend your time decreasing the gap between thinking, oh, well, I should have this beach house or I should have this car or I deserve that and the other. Right, right. And being comfortable with where you actually are today, I think decreasing that gap will decrease your suffering. Wow. I hope everyone tuned into that. That was very powerful. It's very and... Eastern oriented mindset, but I've 
find it when I have like existential anxiety about what we're doing here and why we're running around so hard in our world. And I realize I live a great life. I have a beautiful family. I live in a wonderful house. You know, I get to do all these cool things and I just need to be comfortable with where I am and who I am and not think about kind of what other people are doing or kind of climbing that ladder. It really calms me down a lot. Makes complete sense. And when you said coffee and meditation in your your morning routine, you had me on those two. I mean, <laughs> yeah, helpful. I'm the same way, huge on coffee. And I discovered meditation actually from doing yoga in high school. I grew up in California, surfer, and I have three older sisters. They were doing this thing called yoga. And I was like, what is that? You know, and, you know, as just a curiosity thing, I showed up to a couple of them and I honestly loved the deep breathing because that kind of helped me with surfing, hold my breath longer. And and then from that, I felt this euphoric clarity. And I was like, wow, there's something to this. And then, you know, in the years following, I I've discovered meditation through Tony Robbins, Eastern teachings, and yeah. it's so powerful. The ability to just separate from the thought machine of your mind and just get into the present and say, you know what? I'm so grateful. And by the way, tuning your heart into that energy then attracts others to you that are on that same vibration, which is getting real Eastern, but then bringing it back (laughs) to actual science. Because if you don't know out there, your emotions and your feelings have a frequency, just like certain sounds that are in different musical keys have different frequencies. They can measure this emitting from your heart. It's crazy. Go look it up. But when you're depressed, overwhelmed, and anxious, it's actually a lower vibration of energy. And they equate that more to states that you can be in when you foster disease and illness and sickness. But if you're appreciative, grateful, happy, ecstatic, that's actually a higher vibration of energy and allegedly sickness and disease and all the things can't really survive in that frequency, allegedly. So I love it. I mean, I just kind of try and be that positive person and believe in that. And guess what? I pretty much never get sick and I live a super happy life. So maybe there's something to it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think a lot of our issues as, you know, alpha males, especially come from misconstruing activity with productivity and Mm. filling up our day to avoid reflecting on death or what the future holds for us. And if you do take some time to reflect on that every day, I think it will straighten your mind out so that you can be more present to use a term that's, I think, overused frequently. But I do think that makes a big difference. And I love your thought about the frequency because that goes to imposter syndrome, yes, which we bump up against a lot, which is, well, there's a lot of commercial real estate people out there. Who cares what I have to say about XYZ? Yeah, but not everyone can hear your frequency, right? Right. And certain people are going to be tuned into what you're saying versus all these other people out there running around doing the similar jobs as me. And I think that's been really helpful to me. And my mentors talked about that a lot in terms of my personal brand of tell your story because certain people are going to tune into your frequency. And, and that's important because otherwise they're not going to hear that message. So true. And if you're a listener out there and you have not already Googled the imposter syndrome, please do that. That was a huge breakthrough for me years ago when I was describing something to my girlfriend at the time. And she said, oh, you're suffering from the imposter syndrome. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was because I didn't feel like I was uh, worthy of a position that I currently had 
and I felt like at any day they were going to find out and fire me. And in reality, I was totally qualified for the position. I was totally killing it. And it was a self-esteem and mindset issue. And so when I read the imposter syndrome and I was able to identify it, put a name on it, now I can recognize when it comes up and I can actually treat it and remove it, right? So it's a very powerful thing. Highly recommend. It's a quick read. Just Google the imposter syndrome. It's like one page and it explains it, but very powerful. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Seems like you've read a lot of books, Brian. I what? enjoy reading. Yeah. <laughs> what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life and or your career? Yeah. So when you're a first year law student, they give you a book called Real Property. It's like the most okay. boring book in the world, right? But it was fundamentally mind shifting to me because it explained, and I, I remember my professor talking about this one of the first days of class, that our entire system of credit is based on real property ownership. And I think mm. sometimes people take it for granted that in many countries, you can't own property fee simple outright. It's a 99-year lease from the government, from the state. Right. And so the fact that in America, you can, as a private citizen, own real estate and then use that real estate as credit to take on debt or that you can get leverage to buy that real estate is the fundamental underpinning of the entire economy. It just blew my mind. I never really thought about, you know, the mortgage system or CMBS yeah, or everything, everything around you. Real assets and how like fundamentally most people's net worth is wrapped up in their home, right? And just right. this whole ecosystem around that. So real property 101, not the most fun book in the world, but definitely changed my mindset on things. Okay. And then recently I actually read Reed Hastings' book, the founder of Netflix. Yeah. Um Super cool, definitely worthwhile for people to read. It's got a very different management setup and system. And so I would encourage people to check that out as well. That's more of a recent find that I've had. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, the ability to just crack open a book and decipher some expert's knowledge, their life's work on a certain topic is so incredible. And I love how you brought up real property. It's so timely, especially for <laughs> yeah. this podcast because you know that's what we deal with on a daily basis like the listeners of this podcast you know top brokers out there and it is so true you know I, I lived in Bali for the last two winters I was fortunate enough to own a digital marketing agency my goal three four five years ago was I'm a surfer I want to go live in Bali right I want to have a company that I can operate from there so I wrote it on my dream board I focused on it every single day every morning read it and made it happen. And when I was there, I was like, okay, now I'm here. There are these amazing villas for like $100,000 on the beach. This is awesome. And so I looked into some real estate there, 99 year lease. And mm. a lot of them, they'll do 20 or 30 year leases. And then as the property value goes up, sell it, you know, after five or 10 years using it as a vacation home. But it's a really key thing that we can just own property outright. And that's an interesting point. That's yeah, a very interesting it's, point. it's something that people take for granted, but it fundamentally changes the entire financial system. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, is there a question that I should have asked you or, you know, anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? Biggest mistakes. All right. You know, I think oftentimes people in my position talk about how great they are, how successful they've been. And I, I think that's not terribly productive or helpful to other people. So learning from mistakes has been a big part of how I've, told my story 
and the goal is to help other people not step in that same pothole twice, right? So I've made a ton of mistakes. I continue to make them. But the big one that I hope people take away if they're an aspiring entrepreneur, and this really applies to pretty much any industry, but for me, it was real estate is oftentimes people have this idea or this concept and we use real estate as an example where they think they can buy these properties at a discount, they can make some value, they can make some money, and they can provide some value for their investors. And that's great. What you have to realize is if you want to actually have a scalable, repeatable business model, the deals have to work, right? But separate from that, you have to be comfortable with being a small business owner. And those are two different separate risk profiles. And I don't think people appreciate the fact that in order to be a real estate investor, unless you just want to be a deal guy, which mm-hmm. deal guys kind of come and go with cycles, if you want a long-term, you know, multi-generational company, you need to have the infrastructure in place. So marketing, investor relations, tax, audit, HR, all these other things that really don't have anything to do with the real estate itself, but are vitally critically important to be able to execute on those real estate investments. And I see a lot of people who, in a mistake I made, certainly early in my career, was not putting the right resources in place in order to have that infrastructure to allow for the growth of the company. And I had to kind of get my teeth kicked in, rework everything. Took me about two years. Ultimately, I think it made me a much better manager, but it was a pretty painful experience. So that would be my big mistake. Interesting. So focusing on infrastructure of a real company and not just thinking of yourself as the solopreneur, solo actor, and you know, it's all good. I'm just going to do a pass-through LLC and I'm going to tax as an S-corp and it's just going to go to me. It's all good. But really thinking of it like, no, this is a company and it's going to have a payroll and I'm going to be on that payroll. And then we're going to have a prudent reserve for not only taxes, but other things that might come up unexpectedly. Right, we're gonna have a marketing budget to continue bringing in uh, everything that we need, which is sales. Right, we're gonna have salespeople. We're gonna have. It's so key to think of it that way. And this is a recent breakthrough that I've had with my company as well. You know, I was a manager in the past when I I did sales at Cutco Cutlery, went into management, and they had an incredible recruiting funnel. I mean, my my uh, division manager spent like a million dollars in marketing to get people in in the seats, and then I would bring them to my team, but I didn't understand everything. I didn't understand the whole picture. I understood middle management being in the office and working very hard to, you know, inspire people and get sales, but I didn't understand how to get people in the door in the first place. I didn't understand there was tax payroll on the back end. I understand a lot of other things. So now, you know, then having my own company for coming up on four years now, these are the things that I'm starting to put in place. You know, I was able to do a certain degree of sales and marketing to get myself here. And now it's like, okay, let's, to achieve any degree of scale, I'm going to need to have this, 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 this. So those are some of my big focuses for 2021. That was uh, very timely for me to hear. And I'm sure that a lot of agents or brokers out there that are listening to this are probably thinking the same thing like, ooh, I am that kind of solopreneur that should probably have more systems or people in place. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because you've got to take money out of your pocket. You've got to take time away from your sales efforts or your biz dev efforts, but it will save you time and money in the long run. And you will never regret putting those systems in place and have that infrastructure in place. But it, it does, it can be painful, especially if you're a commission-based company to say, I had a great year. 
let's see if I can just get, you know, have another great year. Well, you know, maybe if you put some things in place, you could grow exponentially and not incrementally. And then I think as entrepreneurs, that's all, that's what we want to achieve, right? Is is exponential growth. Wow. That was powerful. Well, with that, we can call it unless you want to elaborate on something from earlier, which we both kind of alluded to, and I think we both have experience in, but it's, it's a pretty deep topic. So I'm going to leave it up to you. You talked about reflection, you know, when there's loss or there's, there's trauma and how those things can create these kind of blockages is I think what you're alluding to, where if you don't, if you just stay busy, if you just become the workaholic or you just keep your head down, you know, you might go for a certain degree of time, but you'll eventually burn out and you're not going to be maximizing your potential. So is there a story behind that that you want to, you know, tell? And then I'm happy to tell mine because I have one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there was a period in my life where, you know, professionally, I had assigned a lot of value to certain numbers, right? AUM, the company, personal bank accounts, square footage. And I think it all kind of occurred at once, but I achieved a lot of those milestones. And meanwhile, I had not and I alluded to this, I had not put the resources in place to scale the company properly. So I'd grown the company really fast, but things were were not working like they should have. And then my father got sick and a lot occurred within a short period of time where I went through a, de- a depressive episode. Mm. And I you know, started reading a lot of Brene Brown and started talking to you know a therapist and doing a lot more reading about these type of things. And it, it really helped me understand that we all want to do the right thing. We all want to do well. We all want to have these incredible experiences and memories with our families. But it's really helpful to know that at the end of the day, you're just worm food. And like that day will come for us, right? And so you can create these edifices of your greatness. But understanding that these sandcastles you build are going to be taken out with the tide can be sad. But I think it can really help give you perspective about how you spend your day mm. and how you spend your time and where you prioritize things. And it certainly made me, I think, a better manager and a better father and a better husband. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that was certainly a period of time where I think I experienced growth. And I think I have a much better handle on the right way to run the company and the right way to run my personal life as well. No, that... Absolutely answers my question. And I believe there's a lot of power and vulnerability. So that was powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, I would love to to share mine because it actually has to do with my father as well. I was 16 years old, rebelling, and got into a ton of trouble for throwing a party at my parents' house. My father and I were not on speaking terms. And about three weeks later, he went into the hospital, immediately into a coma, and passed away. So I couldn't remember the last time that I had said, I love you to him. I was totally traumatized. I mean, he was the rock in my life. And of course, we had that feud at that time, but oh, there's no way I wanted to end things like that. And so my biggest underlying fear and limiting belief for years after that was that my father wasn't proud of me. And it destroyed pretty much every aspect of my life, but only because I let it. I dove into work. I became an absolute workaholic. I was working 100 hours a week. I was taking 19 units in college. I was on the outside 
achieving a lot. And people were like, how is this kid doing this? Right. I was receiving awards in the world, but I was so empty inside. And it took years of that to put me into a position where I saw the consequences of my actions. And I was like, this isn't working. Like I, I need a better design for living. Right. And so I had to have a total 180, get way more centered with family and just get back to what's really important. And since then, I've been able to do a ton of work on myself. You know, I've gone through shame-based treatment, training. I've gone through all kinds of different, you know, psychological and personal development stuff. And, you know, honestly, a massive one credit to Tony Robbins. I mean, after paying a lot of money for other things, I went to Unleash the Power Within and had breakthrough after breakthrough, just crying and, and shouting and just going crazy all weekend. And uh, it was a powerful turn in my life where then I was able to all of a sudden live a life of purpose, meaning, and all of a sudden the other things just kind of came, right? When I was doing good things for people and living a happy life and spending time with my family and I was full, like my cup was overflowing. All of a sudden now others were not only attracted to that, but wanted to then do business with me, opportunities falling out of the sky. I'm meeting people at events and they're introducing me to people and they're becoming clients. It's just everything became like it was in flow state. And I had been cutting myself off from all of those abundances and riches around me because I was holding on so tightly to something from the past that I was trying to just kind of bury and set aside. So when you kind of alluded to that, I was pretty convinced there was a story. Thank you so much for telling it because that past, you know, all of the things that we spoke in this podcast that were very valuable, this is what truly could change someone's life out there. So thank you so much for sharing and, uh, you know, for my share, I've said that story so many times, but I hope that it helps just one person. So, you know, that's me. <sighs> Feels good to say that, doesn't I feel it? Feel better now. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Yeah, I do. So, with that being said, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you so much, Brian Adams. And how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So, I'm super active on LinkedIn. If you want to look me up, Brian uh, C. Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note, connect with me. I'm happy to, to chat and be helpful any way that I can. And then you can, of course, go to the website, ExcelsiorGP.com. You can, we have a ton of content on there, probably more than you ever wanted to know, but webinars, blog pieces, uh, all my podcasts. And um, if you're interested in learning about investments, you can sign up there and uh, we can get you kind of clued in on some of the opportunities we're working on. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again, Brian. Truly an amazing discussion and uh, I appreciate your time. So yeah. you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you for having me. You got it. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.